this week on The Joys of Binge Reading to celebrate St. Patrick's Day, A Little Bit of Green. Irish thriller author Catherine Ryan Howard with her latest nerve-shredding suspense, Runtime. It's the book that's shortlisted for the Irish Book Awards Crime Fiction Book of the Year and a top 10 Kindle bestseller. Welcome to The Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler, and on Binge Reading Today, Catherine talks about her psychological thriller about an actress cast in a horror film that begins to mirror real life. And as well as talking about runtime, she also tells us how she plots her intricate stories. She has a very special Excel spreadsheet for the job. And how she came to be dubbed the queen of high concept thrillers. We've got a historical fiction giveaway, lots of historical fiction free for download, including Tainted Fortune, book number seven in my California of Gold and Blood mystery series. Links to Catherine's books and the giveaway, as usual, can be found in the show notes for this episode on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. That's binge, B-I-N-G-E, reading.com. If you enjoy the show, don't forget to leave us five stars or a pleasing comment on your favorite podcast provider so others hear about us and can enjoy the show too. But now, here's Catherine. Hello there, Catherine, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. Now, you're in Dublin and I'm in Auckland, so we're just about as far apart as we could be, but it's wonderful to be able to talk directly like this. I think if we went any closer, you'd start coming back to me. We are literally on the opposite sides of the world. (laughs) That's right. Look, you're an award-winning, internationally best-selling thriller writer whose books have been optioned for screen. From your debut, you've enjoyed a great level of success. Tell us how you actually got started on this trip. So thank you for that lovely recap. I always wanted to be a writer. So I actually work with a picture. I can see it on the wall behind my computer screen here of me aged eight. And it was taken on Christmas morning and I'm in my nightdress. I've got a little ponytail coming out either side of my head and I'm tapping away on the typewriter that I asked Santa Claus to bring me. So I always wanted to be a writer. Now, when I was younger, when I was in my kind of 20s, I made a mistake, which was that I became obsessed with getting published. So I would read all the books and I'd go to all the talks and I knew exactly what I needed to do, but I never actually did any writing, which it turns out is a crucial part of getting published. So when I finally realized like that's what I needed to do, I had read an article about an employee who disappeared off a Disney cruise ship. And I used to work for Disney. I used to work in Walt Disney World in Florida. And that's why I was reading the article, but it mentioned something called the International Cruise Victims Organization. Now, I had never been on a cruise. I certainly haven't gone on one since or I'm planning to go. 
But when I started researching maritime law, I basically discovered that if you go on a cruise, it's like going on holiday to a country where there's no police. And I thought that's a great setting for a thriller. So I finally sat down and started writing it. And once I did that, once I forgot all the silly being obsessed with looking for an agent and how to do this, once I just sat down and started writing, it actually, I wouldn't say it was easy because it's been a very long road, but then everything happened quite quickly. I got an agent, she got me my first book deal, and then we were off to the races after that. Fantastic. Was that first book, the one that you got inspired to write, was that the first one that was actually published? Yes, Distress Signals. Now, I did prior to that write some, like I'd write three chapters of something or five chapters of something, but it never, I never tried to write crime. I was always, again, trying to write like stupidly what I thought would get me published that my heart wasn't in really. But I should have tried to write crime from the beginning because that's what I love. That's what I love to read and have been reading since I was way too young to be reading crime. So once I realized, and I say this to other writers, like my favorite advice is write the book you want to read but can't find on the shelf. And I think once I did that, everything then clicked into place. Yeah, that's fantastic. Now, this book that we're talking about today, One Time, which is the latest one that you've published as of now, and I'm pretty sure it still will be by the time this is, podcast is going to be posted next month so you've got nothing else coming out in the meantime I'm pretty sure is that <laughs> yeah um, you're safe enough there <laughs> it's the story of a down on her luck former soap actress she's had a wonderful career in soap she thinks she's going to use it as a platform for launching herself into international stardom so she almost flaps the soap people down and says I'm moving on to bigger things and then she has difficulties and she is desperate enough to take this role in a rather B-grade horror movie. And as soon as she gets onto the set, strange, weird things start happening, which mirror what's supposed to be happening in the script. You've said that the original idea was inspired by your brother. Can you tell us about that connection? Yeah, he loves when I do interviews about this book because he gets a mention. So he's an actor and a few years ago he was in an independent Irish horror movie called Beyond the Woods. And of course he was telling me like all about the experience of being on set. And one of the things he said, and it, Beyond the Woods, if you read Runtime, will sound very familiar because it was filmed in this house out in the middle of nowhere in the Cork countryside in the dead of winter overnight. They were shooting everything at night. And he said one of the first things they did is the director had to go to the local police station and say, look, if someone calls you at four in the morning to say, I hear screams, I think someone's getting murdered. They're not. It's just us filming. And of course, being a crime writer, I immediately thought, what if it is someone getting murdered? That's a great cover story. You're giving yourself a bit of a bit of time to get away ahead start. When I sat down to write the book, that idea went away and it turned into something else. But that's the initial seed. And I loved the idea of there being a script for a horror movie that when the actors go to film it, the same things that are happening in the script start to happen on the set. Because, of course, your first question, I think, would be, is this really happening or is my director secretly filming me or something? It's hard to know what's real and what's not. And I think that's at the core of the novel. Yes, exactly. You do open with a scene where the director and an assistant go 
and knock on someone's door and say, if you hear any screaming, don't worry. And I immediately thought, oh, what a perfect cover for a crime. <laughs> exactly that. The story does show a very close understanding of the filming process, what happens on set and all the different roles that there are in the production side of things. And I wondered if you'd had any personal experience of that yourself. I really don't. Like, first of all, my brother was a great resource, of course, and I have a couple of other friends who'd be involved in the industry. So if there was something specific I wanted to know, I would go and ask them. And then I made sure after I'd written it that I had done it right. But I actually love movies about movies. So I love For Your Consideration and I love, there's a great movie called The TV Set, which is about trying to get a comedy made and they're both comedies themselves. And I just love all that kind of insider inside the industry. I wouldn't have any deep knowledge of it, but I think there's a lot of parallels between being an actress and being a writer in that you're both in this entertainment industry in a creative industry and I just used every little thing I had heard about. There is some stuff that literally I got from people I know, especially there's a scene towards the beginning where Adele, the main character, goes to audition for a commercial. And my brother has done lots of commercial auditions and I was asking him, what are they like? And he said, the funniest thing is you're often given completely contradictory instructions so that you go into audition and they say your character is confident but also terrified show us that <laughs> and what are you supposed to do so I just love all that I think it's hilarious and I used as much as I could in the book to make it seem like I had some in-depth knowledge yes so it switches between the book that the film is based on and the film set itself and it's quite hard sometimes to think about Hang on a sec, are we in the book or are we in the movie? It gets very intense. So I wondered, how did you plot it? Did you have it all sorted out at the beginning? Did you use a spreadsheet? How did you keep track of all those intense twists and turns? So I'm famous for using spreadsheets. I've never written a book without a spreadsheet. <laughs> and every time I start one, I think this time I'm going to keep it simple. And of course, it just all gets, I can only write one kind of book and they're complex. Like this book is almost like a Russian doll in that you're taking out all these different stories. So to keep things easy for myself, the first thing I did was decide what happened in the movie. So the script. And I started with that and I had a good idea of where I was going with it. And then I went and I wrote what happens on set as they're filming this book. But the other thing that people, oftentimes you meet writers who are at the beginning of their career and they're like, I could never write a book this complicated, but it doesn't come out that way. You do numerous drafts, you get to fix all your mistakes as you go along and it takes a lot of work to get to that, to get to that final point. And I do think Runtime is probably my most complex novel and it's supposed to be a bit of a game. It's supposed to be a bit fun. It's not supposed to be too serious. I want you to be like, wait a second, is this the movie or the book? I want that feeling because that's what Adele feels in the book. She doesn't know what's real and what's not. And so for me, the aim is to make the reader feel that as well. Yeah, it was actually interesting because you did mention just a moment ago about the feeling that the director might be secretly filming her being bewildered. And I gathered from the background that you give in the book that that there was a period where there was quite a popular film trend for that to happen, where they did a live fly-on-the-wall filming. And I, it never occurred to me until you suggested it in the book that they could be actually 
pulling a double kind of trick on her. But that even introduces a third level of, hang on a sec, does everybody else on set know this is happening except her, doesn't it? Yeah, and that's the beauty of it. I thought of this novel as being on like moving ground. Like you'd never feel steady footing as you were going through it because you would be second guessing everything. And I loved it. I had great fun. Now you mentioned drafts. How many drafts would you normally do for a novel? I always tend to do three drafts and then a kind of half draft where I just go back in and move a few things around. But I I don't really write three drafts. I write three books in the sense that I write a draft and then it goes to my editor and I hope she's not going to have remorse that she gave me a book deal. And then, <laughs> then I start with a blank document and I start from scratch a second draft and I do the same thing with the third draft, although the third draft usually has chunks of text that survives. But I just like to rewrite entirely because I think that's how you get really lovely, smooth storytelling and type prose. And it's just the best way for me to do it. It kind of it forces you to get the best sentence you can each time. And I just love doing that. That's my, I've tried to work in more efficient ways, but I think I've figured out now I'm writing my seventh book at the moment that there's no point trying to change that that's my process and I need to embrace it. Gosh, that's amazing. I think I might find it a bit boring to write the same thing again. But it's not quite the same thing because I'm setting aside the earlier version and now that I have a bit more confidence, now that like I know, like for instance, when I'm writing the first one, I probably don't have the ending all figured out. But then when I get to write the second one, I'm like, now I know exactly what's going to happen. So like the hard work is done. And now that I have this confidence and I know where I'm going, it's much more fun to write that part. But I'm changing everything as I go. All that really stays the same is the general idea. Like character name changes, villains change, twists change. So it's each draft is its own discovery, as you like. Wow. And how many sections would these spreadsheets have how extensive are they they are horrendous they look like schematics they're all color-coded and like when I showed them to other people I actually stopped showing them to other people when I saw their faces when they showed what they look like the other thing is I'm a really big procrastinator so I probably don't need to color code the spreadsheets but I do because if you're color coding a spreadsheet you can't start writing it so there's probably an element of that to it too but they are quite complicated they're a bit scary even I would say especially for this one that's amazing you didn't have any background in kind of maths and it sounds like you're a real kind of nerd brain (laughs) I am I have absolutely zero ability I can't even add Scrabble scores together like I'm (laughs) definitely not but I am quite visual I do planning stuff out and being able to see the whole story at a glance so I think that's where yeah yeah oh that's great Look, the book before this one also sounded very interesting. I must admit I didn't get a chance to read it, but 56 Days is set in COVID lockdown and this couple decides to move in together very quickly because of the fact that if they don't, they're not going to be able to see each other and they don't know how long lockdown's going to last. And you actually wrote it in lockdown, I think. Is that right? I thought that would be quite a weird experience if you could... Expand on that a bit for us. Well, I think it was a weird experience anyway, (laughs) to be in lockdown. Um, 
I think like New Zealand can probably relate to Ireland more than most because we both had very severe and strict lockdowns. Whereas like our neighbours here in the UK just didn't experience the same thing we did. So back in March 2020, the 27th of March, we were put into lockdown and the main rules were you you had to stay at home unless you were grocery shopping or were taking individual exercise, meaning alone, within a two kilometer radius of your house. And everything stopped. Everything stopped. Schools, non-essential businesses, public transport, it just all went away overnight. And I was supposed to be writing a book that I was contracted for, which I had decided was going to be about a shooting in a nightclub and a course that involved crowds and international travel and all sorts of things, which just went away. So overnight, this book became science fiction. And at the time, everyone was like, this is an unprecedented global catastrophe. So I wasn't worried about missing my deadline. I was like, no one's going to care about I'm missing my deadline. The world's falling apart. Falling apart. And then... um. I was thinking, and like we did hear about people, if you were dating someone new, you had to stop dating them or move in together. If you were going to stick by the rules, you weren't supposed to mix with people, even outside who didn't live in your house. And for a while, I'd had this like very vague idea about a couple who meet and fall in love, but all is not what it seems. But I had nothing for them to do for a whole book. I knew what the ending would be, but I didn't know what would go on for 100,000 words. And suddenly we have this lockdown situation. And I just thought, this is the perfect plot for those two characters. Like they couldn't invent a better situation for what they both need to do. And I live alone. I was living alone then. And I was in a much smaller apartment than I am now, a studio apartment that was about the size of three parking spaces. I was going absolutely nuts. (laughs) you think you want to be told to stay at home and watch Netflix and read and you do for a few weeks but then you know things start to go a little crazy so actually going out into because I lived in the centre of Dublin so I'm walking down the what is normally the busiest street one of the busiest streets in Europe Grafton Street in the city centre of Dublin and it's empty at lunchtime on a weekday. Because I was in the city centre, I was getting to see things not many people did. It was like walking around a zombie apocalypse movie. And so I'd come home and I'd take whatever I had seen that day and I'd put it into the book. I was nearly writing that first draft in real time. And it was weird, but honestly, it also kept me sane. Like, I'm so grateful for that book, not just because... Like it's been my most successful book to date and it changed a lot of things for me. It changed my career, but also I'm thankful for it for just keeping me sane during those very odd months. Can you give us a teaser line from it without giving away the story? We know that they moved in together, but something happens, something drastic happens, doesn't it? Yeah. So I would say it starts with a body being found in the apartment that they shared And then we flash back to 56 days ago to the day that they met. And the question is, what went so badly wrong in between to end up with one of them being dead? And is lockdown providing the opportunity for the perfect murder? Question mark. Just as a little aside, I think I read somewhere that was it a wolf was seen 
coming down the main street of Dublin during lockdown or some wild creature anyway that is not normally seen in those environs. I didn't hear that, but that's so possible because we have, I'm not sure about wolves, but we have so many foxes and things that like... it might have been a fox, yeah. yeah. Honestly, they, they're practically tame around here anyway. Like I hear, I'm right in the city and I hear foxes outside my door every night because people are feeding them. The seagulls really took over the city because they're a scourge anyway. And then when lockdown happened, of course, they'd no food to steal. And they just went, I think they went nuts, basically. They, like you would just hear the screeching of the seagulls anytime you walked around. So, yeah, it was very weird. And I think we still don't really appreciate how weird it was. Yeah, I read one reviewer who called you the queen of high concept thrillers. Now, I must admit, I've now been writing historical mysteries for a couple of years myself. But when I first came across this term high concept, I wasn't even quite sure what it was meant to be talking about. And there's quite a few readers who probably don't, haven't come across that term, although they have probably read a high concept thriller without realizing that what is what it was. Could you just give us a bit of an insight into what high concept means? I think high concept is one of those terms that really publishing uses that has escaped out (laughs) into the book world. And readers don't care about things like that. But high concept to me, there's many different definitions. But high concept usually means something that you can describe in a couple of sentences. And... Those couple of sentences give you a very good idea of what the book is about, but they also really make you want to read it. And my favorite example of high concept is my favorite book and movie of all time, Jurassic Park, because that, I think, is the highest high concept idea ever. Genetically engineered dinosaurs brought back from extinction and put in a theme park. Even if you've never seen or read Jurassic Park, you have a fairly good idea what's going to happen. It's not going to be a happy day at Disney World. So that's really what high concept means is that like it doesn't take you five minutes to explain the the plot of the book. Like there's a very succinct, easy premise that can be relayed in a couple of sentences. So for instance, a couple moves in together at the start of lockdown, at the end of lockdown, one of them is dead. That's yeah. concept. Now, do you deliberately work on your story idea until it gets to that level of honing it? Do you deliberately aim for high concept books? Absolutely. I wouldn't say it's something that happens consciously because these are just the kind of books that I write. And what I think of as an idea is always something I concept. If it doesn't feel like that, then it's not really an idea for me. It's not a goer. I think that we have to appreciate how much work the idea has to do. I think we need to understand that the vast majority of people who read your book, that comes at the end of the process. Most of the people along the way do not read your book. I'm talking about people in publishing meetings. I'm talking about sales agents going into the bookseller and saying, will you take this book? I'm thinking of us as readers reading reviews and hearing what that's all about the idea. If a friend of yours reads a book and loves it and says to you, I love this book, that's great. But the majority of people are deciding what to read based on little succinct of the idea. And so you can write the greatest book, but if you can't convince someone to read it, if you can't entice someone into reading it, there's not much point. So for me, I think having 
an idea that can be really strongly and succinctly communicated and makes people go, oh, I really want to read that. That's the best thing you can do for your own work to make sure that it's read. Does it take you a long time to get there? I'm very monogamous with ideas. I only have one at a time. And I have to trust that after I have written the one I have now, another one will come along. I'm not one of these writers who has loads of ideas and I wish I just need time to write all the ideas. I don't. I'm not like that. I have one idea. I work on it. And when I'm coming to the end of that, then another one starts to bubble up. So I'm at the stage now with my next book that will hopefully be out like in 2024. The next, like I have a book coming out in August, but I'm talking about the book coming out after it. I'm starting to write that now. So I'm at the stage where I'm taking what has been bubbling and I'm actually putting it on paper for the first time. But if my editor doesn't like it, I don't know what I'm going to do because there's no other idea. (laughs) I'll be in trouble. Moving away from specific books to looking at your wider creative life, tell us a little bit more about your life before writing and how those experiences might have fed into your writing. Sounds like you did some rather interesting things before you settled down to write. Um, I did, but they, I kind of did them because I wasn't writing in the sense that, like, I always wanted to write, but as I mentioned, I never did any actual writing. And so it wasn't happening. My big dream of being a published author and I did some boring office jobs that you take because it's <laughs> all you can do. And then I decided when I was 23 that I was going to go on an adventure. So I started working abroad. I worked in the Netherlands and I worked in France very briefly. And then I got a job in Walt Disney World in Florida. So I went there for a year and a half, which was as long as I could go. That's as long as the visa was. And while I was there, I started writing about my experiences like in a nonfiction memoir. So when I came home, I had a book, which I ended up self-publishing. And then that was right time, right place. Self-publishing was really taking off at the time because for the first time, anyone could put a book on Kindle and everyone was buying a Kindle. And so I started getting invited to do talks and I got some work out of helping other people to self-publish their books and things like that. And that then gave me the time and the headspace and the money for ink cartridges that I needed to actually go and write my novel. So I had some really amazing adventures, but everything I ever did was for me a means to an end, like to kill time until my dreams came true and I could have this job. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Look, this is the binge reading podcast. And we do like to ask you about your own reading habits and if you've got any recommendations to share with readers what do you like to read now and even just in the past what's mention again some of your favorites and what you're reading at the moment so I'm a huge crime thriller fan that's what I read like more than anything else and my favorite book of last year is a literary thriller I would describe it notes on an execution by Dania Kukafka I just thought it was an incredible book that I wish I could read again for the first time Um, I love to read nonfiction and I tend to do a lot of binging on subjects. So I will read a book. Like one time I got really into everything about doping in the Tour de France, even though I would never watch the Tour de France or have any interest in cycling whatsoever. (laughs) When you read one really good book, which was The Secret Race by Tyler Hamilton. And then I had to go and read everything else I could find about the same subject. And Jurassic Park, 
favorite novel of all time. Michael Connolly is my favorite crime writer in terms of someone who has a reoccurring character and writes a series. And yeah, I'm, I've just read an amazing novel, a debut actually, that's out this summer called The Quiet Tenant by Clemence Michemelon, I think you pronounce it. She's French, but she lives in New York. And it's stunning. It's the book I'm going to be recommending to everyone this year. That's wonderful. Actually, as you were talking, it does come to mind that Ireland has got a very strong thread of, and a lot of the female, but not all female, but heavily, strongly women writers doing crime and thrillers, doesn't it? Yeah, and we all know each other, so we have a great laugh. Yeah, we're really punching above our weight with Irish female crime writers. And one of them is closer to you, Dervin McTiernan, because she's based in Australia, but mm. she's from Galway and she sets most of her books here. So we have people like Liz Nugent, Jane Casey, Joe Spain, Andrea Carter. Like I could name so many names. We are really lucky to have an amazing group of predominantly female Irish crime writers. It is funny that we have a relatively low crime rate, just like Iceland. They have hardly any crime and loads of crime writers, but that's better than it being the other way around. It is. I wonder if there's anything that creates that environment. Australia also is coming through very strongly with crime writers these days, and it seems as if sometimes one genre really takes off. I wonder if it's partly writers encouraging one another. I'm not quite sure what it is, but yeah. It's... I'm not sure what starts it. Like we all have different theories. One of mine is actually connected to the book that I have out in August, which is that when I was a child in Ireland, I didn't think crime was was a thing that happened here. We don't have guns and we never had any like murders that I know of that you see on TV and stuff like that. And crime was something that happened in New York or London. and then. During the 90s, when I was a teenager, we had a case here that we called the Vanishing Triangle, where an unofficial tally of eight women literally just disappeared off the face of the earth. Three decades later, none of their disappearances have been solved and none of the women have been found. We also had the murder then, the brutal murder of Sophie Tuscan de Plantier in Cork, where I'm from, which a lot of listeners may know from the Netflix documentary that was out in the last year. And so when I'm a child, Ireland is an incredibly safe place where nothing happens. And by the year I turn 18, we have eight missing women and this unsolved brutal murder in my own county. And I think that had a big effect on me because it made crime real. And there was no justice. There's still no justice for any of these women. So to be a woman in Ireland is to have the message that you don't matter as much as the men and people can take you away and people can murder you and there's no comeuppance. And I think a lot of the fact that we as Irish women are writing crime is in a way a response to that. Mm. And then, of course, if one person is doing it, it seems more achievable to other people. So then more women do it. And I think it's a mix of that that we have the situation we do, which is great. Yeah, it is. Looking back down the tunnel of time, if there was one thing about your writing career that you'd change, what would it be? I'd have started writing sooner. Yes. I would have stopped all the faffing about and the reading the books about how to write a book. And I would have just started writing a book. <laughs> Do you think the advice helped you when you did actually get started? All that advice that I had consumed, did yeah, it? But Yes, it did. It, none of it was a waste of time. And look, I really think everything has worked out 
the way it was supposed to. And I don't regret, I don't regret anything. And yes, I messed around for a long time. But I also don't think that I was 33 when Distress Signals was published. And I don't think I could have written that book when I was 25. Like I just, I wouldn't have been able to do it. I didn't have enough life experience and I didn't have much more life experience <laughs> the time I was 33. I just think everything happened the way it was supposed to. Yes, yes. Continues to. Yeah. So tell us just when you're looking ahead over the next 12 months for yourself as a writer, what have you got on your desk and what's coming up? So I'm starting my eighth book, but no one will know anything about that for a long time yet. But in August, on the 3rd of August over here, and I presume Australia and New Zealand will follow shortly thereafter, my eighth or my seventh thriller, I'm getting mixed up now myself, The Trap will be released. And the starting point for that book, it's entirely fictional, but the starting point for the idea is those missing women in the 90s. Because I was thinking, I often think about their families and I just don't know how they get through an hour of the day, let alone 30 years not knowing what happened to their loved one. And I think I was wondering, is there a point where the torment of not knowing becomes worse almost than the grief of the loss? And if there is such a thing, if that moment does happen, what happens then? And so in the trap, a woman takes matters basically into her own hands to try and find her missing sister. So it's not as complicated as runtime, but it's still pretty complicated. <laughs> Do you enjoy interacting with your readers and where can they find you online? Yes, I probably interact too much with my readers. I should be writing instead of being on my phone. But Instagram is my happy place. I've half abandoned Twitter and Facebook at this stage, but I do love Instagram. Genuinely love it. Love being on it. Love talking to people on it. And so if anyone is looking for me, they will find all my Jurassic Park and Lego stuff and crime writing on there. Fantastic. Did you say Lego stuff? Yeah. I have a, I have an entire, you can't see it, but to my right here, I have bookcases and all along the top of the bookcase is my Lego street. So I have ah. a hotel, a bank, a cinema, a restaurant, a bookshop, a garage, a detective's office. It's all on Instagram. <laughs> we'll and I'm me. 40, so... <laughs> Oh, Catherine, it's been a delight to talk. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Next time on Binge Reading, in two weeks' time, on March the 21st, whip-smart, laugh-out-loud rom-coms from Canadian author Lily Chu. Lily releases her books first on audio, and they've been top of Audible books in 2021 and 2022. That's Lily Chu in a fortnight on the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. And remember, once again, if you enjoyed listening today, send us some stars or leave us a positive comment on your podcast provider. It really does help others find us to see your comments and take a look. That's it for today. Thanks for listening and happy reading.